0: For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven day free trial. Notice how much better you will feel by having a consistent practice to support you staying centered. Welcome back to the Center in the City podcast. I am so excited for today's episode and guests. We get to talk about food and emotions to food and just some of my favorite topics. And we have the perfect guest to lead us in this discussion. I am excited to have Dr. Ashley White with us, who is a physician and industry leader who is challenging the weight as health dogma. Her groundbreaking work with responsive eating has encouraged a critical shift in the medical field in a way that people with larger bodies are perceived and treated. Dr. Ashley White, Ashley we'll call her, is going to talk to us more about her responsive eating mythology and we're going to talk about more of like our ancestral history with eating and the anxiety that comes with eating and how to make choices around food and nourishment. So this is definitely a juicy episode. I hope you get cozy and comfortable and let's settle in and get centered. Ashley, welcome to the Center in the City podcast. Thank you, Wade. I want to begin with my famous question. I've been getting a lot of feedback around this question that it's like, oh, that's an interesting way to start off. Tell us about a time where you weren't centered and how did you work on recentering yourself?
1: I actually really enjoy that you asked this question and I've been excited to listen to other people's answers to this. So when I was thinking about this, I actually think the times that I've not been centered, and I will tell you, there have been more than one. <laughs> are times all of us (laughs) right it's it's not necessarily that these are times where my external environment has everything in order it's not as though centered times are times when everything is going well centered times are actually in my experience times when I am okay despite things being totally disrupted um, and it's similar to a bit of a flow state, despite the chaos. And and I can be a bit of a chaos agent, so I understand that. Um, I think for me, uh, times when I have not been centered are times when I am experiencing sleeplessness or insufficient sleep, plus unexce- unexpected circumstances. So I just got COVID, um, which is, you know, I got the mild version, so that's fine. And I'm, you know, deep into my second trimester of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so those two things together made it so that I couldn't work uh, because I work in a hospital and I couldn't um, parent effectively <laughs> because I was feeling very unwell and I couldn't go outside to Do any of the things that I wanted to do. And I was really lamenting the circumstances. And I was sort of being an irritable version of myself and not really noticing that there were opportunities to do things like meditate. <laughs> uh, like actually, that's when I signed up for Centered in the City was at that time because I was like, okay, I need some need some mojo here. Um, and so when it was when I felt contained by being in the house, by not being able to connect, by not being able to perform, which is certainly a trigger for feeling uncentered for me. Um, I would say that's, I mean, that's a pretty everyday version of, I, I think a lot of people can probably identify with having COVID and feeling disconnected from the world.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Even I was just actually in
1: general. So, totally, totally. And, and I was shocked by how much
0: I felt jumbled as a result of that. Mm. I love that. And I love that you also didn't just sit in it. I mean, I think part of, part of the practice is sitting when we're not centered. And as you said, being with all of the the chaos and the uh, symptoms that sounds like were, were happening in your body from being sick with COVID pregnancy, all of that, and that you reached out for support besides just being in it because that's part of the practice to just hold are suffering even when it's not fun hold that non-centered feeling that you reach out for support so that's awesome and i'm so happy to have you in the center of the city community
1: uh it's it's lovely because it it fits into the chaos
0: (laughs) yes and that is how it's intended i'm excited to talk to you about one of my favorite topics food eating the whole relationship with it there's so much i've noticed over the years not only does like food bring me so much happiness and creativity and connection and it's love and it's memories there's so much there and a lot of my relationship to food and nourishment was really highlighted on my month-long silent meditation retreat that i did in march and so i thought this would be a really interesting conversation to talk to you about our relationship to food, anxiety around food. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to begin by just even learning a little bit more about your mythology around responsive eating and how you work with your patients and clients around responsive eating.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do hope we get to chat about the trajectory of your experience of wanting throughout that meditation. i I think I'd love to know what that was like. I, I bet it was up and down, <laughs> um, but, but responsive eating is actually a system. It's a mental framework for approaching each eating experience, recognizing that sometimes we eat because we're hungry and sometimes we eat because we're wanting And most of the time we eat in a way that is entirely automatic, just like we do most things in a way that is completely automatic. And of course, it's rational and normal and and good for us to eat automatically, because if we didn't, we would probably be hungry a lot and potentially be ill. And so, of course, a lot about eating should be automatic. But in the modern environment, which is uh, intensely calorie rich, we, we rarely experience food scarcity, although we often experience nutrition scarcity, we can find ourselves getting a lot of mixed messages from our appetite. A lot of those messages are are deep in the subconscious. They're, They're processed in very primitive parts of the brain such that we feel completely out of control of our appetites and we do not understand what the appetite is telling us and when. And so because the culture that we live in creates this impression that we have control then our personal inability to eat in a way that is prescribed by you know the nutrition people and clean eating gurus and you know doctors our our inability to do that is then internalized as a failure of willpower and we become really hard on ourselves when we can't diet because Mm. it's inconsistent with what is going on in our brains Mm -hmm. And as a result, a lot of movements have come up. One of those movements is intuitive eating. And so intuitive eating was a, a really important step forward, recognizing that there, there is the ability to perceive hunger and that with some awareness and with some pausing, you can perceive hunger. The challenge I had with intuitive eating and, and why I developed responsive eating is because there, is, there are two other dimensions to the appetite. The first is wanting, Uh, and wanting is not about hunger. It's not about nutrition. It's not about homeostatic sensing of nutrients. It's about our desire for pleasure and motivation and connection. It's about dopamine fundamentally, and so we eat because we want, and historically, this wanting experience has been mapped onto the hunger experience because if we did not go and pursue food to the exclusion of all other things, we would as a species not be here. <laughs> and so of course wanting is powerful. And sometimes in some people it's, it's the reason that we eat. right? Um, and so I wanted a system that acknowledged wanting so that we could then live with some version of acceptance. So that we could move into saying, hey, wanting is actually just part of being alive. And the discomfort of navigating wanting is part of the human experience and then developing a, a way to cope through that. And then the third dimension, of course, is the culture, is, the, is diet culture, which exerts daily pressure on our eating experiences and tells us how to be when that may not be consistent with how we can be.
0: Ugh. I love hearing you talk about all the layers of responsive eating and the wanting piece is so essential to pay attention to. And I remember when I started my mindful eating practice, a book that really woke me up to all the layers that we want and what are we eating for was a book called mindful eating a guide to rediscovering a healthy and joyful relationship with food by jan chosen bays Mm -hmm. and i have this in the center of the city community and this is also how i like to create the nourishment recipes in the platform is paying attention to what part of you is hungry? Like, what are you eating for in this moment? Are you eating for your heart? Mm -hmm. Are you eating for your fingers? Are you eating for your tongue? Because it's certain time and that's what you think you should.
1: I really love what you said about eating for your fingers because that's very much uh, patterning. That's this idea that we develop ways of eating that reflect early childhood experiences, that reflects- Generations of experiences, and we pursue connection and, and fullness and, and sort of a tactile experience when we pursue food. Lots of people pursue food for a sensory experience uh, because food is so sensory. Um, so eating with eating for your fingers is is a, just a wonderful way of putting that. I love it.
0: Yes. And right, like all of our senses, I love that you're highlighting eating is such a sensory experience. One of the things that I noticed, you know, post retreat a lot, and Mm -hmm. I think I've noticed this for a while, but sometimes I have food scarcity. Mm -hmm. And when I do some reflection on that, what comes up for me is my heritage of being a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like, do some of our food anxieties come from? Like, is it possible mm-hmm. that it's passed down through generations? Like, is it just because it's learned that maybe I picked up something, some anxiety from my parents? Just curious to learn more about that of where food anxiety comes from, or in my case, even food scarcity.
1: Mm-hmm. There are probably a couple answers to that question. So, certainly, your direct early childhood experiences of being in a home of parents whose, whose parents, I assume, were harmed in, at least in, well, obviously in some way by being Jewish early in the 1900s, uh, which is obviously a, a really traumatic shared cultural experience, no matter how close you were to the Holocaust, is, you know, having had those experiences of scarcity um, in your home is part of it. And certainly part of patterning, behavioral patterning, but there is this entire field of epigenetics where essentially we all come at this life as, as organisms with a bunch of different layers of proteins that define our DNA. And through a process called methylation, we can flip on some of those genes and flip off some of those other genes using you know, changes in the protein structure. And so some people have upregulated responses to the pleasure of food or the motivation for food or other things, including drugs and alcohol, because of the sensitivity they they have to pleasure and and dopamine. So whatever happened um, and whatever dysregulation occurred generations ago can be passed on Um, through the birthing experience of multiple generations to subsequent generations. So you could be perceiving that you have this food scarcity, even though you yourself have never been hungry because generations ago, something flipped on through this epigenetic process that led you to be more responsive to food scarcity or to be more sensitive to food scarcity which ultimately is a survival instinct which is which is great from a from an evolutionary perspective it means that you you are adapting to an environment that it that was never meant to be so as you know
0: yeah that is so helpful to hear and to also connect to the epigenetics which i know that there's research around mindfulness the practice of meditation affecting our epigenetics which is pretty cool and powerful. That's helpful to recognize that some of the patterning is not mine, mm-hmm. right? That some of it is just kind of in my DNA and can I observe it and notice it without needing to react to it? Mm-hmm. Like, can I just notice like, oh, huh, this is, this is coming from a, a deeper place. And mm-hmm. can I, like, I'm, what's coming up for me as you're sharing this is just like, oh, wow, can I offer myself more compassion when that scarcity and anxiety shows up?
1: Mm -hmm. We use a tool in in my program called um, self as context. And this comes from a certain kind of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And the metaphor I love using is imagine your whole life, you've been a fish swimming in the water. And you don't know you're in the water because you're a fish swimming in the water. And then one day you jump and you see the whole sea for what it is. And you realize, oh, I've just been living in the sea. And when you recognize that your circumstances are constrained by things largely beyond your control, then you can find freedom in that and and acceptance in that. And you can then move through life in a way that is less tortured, (laughs) It's, it's when you apply that to food um, and when you recognize like, oh, I've just been living unquestionably in a diet culture that would have me feel horrible about things that are are not within my control. Um, and I've been living with a set of genes that just are my genes. Then you can offer yourself a different pathway. And, and that's what
0: I've tried to do. Yes. And that deep, practice of acceptance for the circumstances is Mm -hmm. so powerful so that we're not spending that extra energy struggling or resisting. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to learn more. I know I have some clients and I have some clients who experience feeling really anxious or off-centered when going into eating scenarios like a picnic or a barbecue or maybe a bigger dinner, and they don't know, they get overwhelmed by food choices Mm -hmm. because whether they don't know what they should be eating or what they want to be eating or whether what's going to give them a stomach ache or what's not. I'm curious, like what are some ways that you would recommend people kind of be with food experiences in a way that can support them staying centered and embodied as they're navigating?
1: Mm -hmm. The first bit of the work that we do is really around identification of values. And I know that you do that as well in Centered in the City. You start with saying, what is it that matters to you? And I like to encourage my patients and my clients to bring their values around physically with them, either written down or in some sort of mantra, um, because that helps them um, remember what matters ultimately, right? And so if they're going into a picnic scenario and it's a picnic scenario with people that they love and you know a context that makes them feel a lot of pleasure and joy, then they can recognize that they're going to get filled up by the experience in addition to the food is obviously going to fill them too but the the pleasure and the reward of that experience may in fact be the experience and then the other piece of this is giving yourself a beat so i use a system called pop in responsive eating and it stands for pause observe and proceed so it allows us to maintain present moment awareness as um, as sort of you move through each chew And it's just a simple pop and you can say it to yourself. You can like physically do it, um, but you, the pause is just giving yourself a beat to wake up. So your executive mind can try to be a little less automatic and, uh, and sometimes more thoughtful observe. Often you just experience like a rush of food and body stories, um, anxieties. I should, this, I should, that, a bunch of cognitive distortions and they just kind of arrive in your mind. And then. Allow yourself to be a bit like a river, where all that stuff just gets to flow downstream, and you don't have to hold on to it. You you don't have to be the dam. You can just be the river for your thoughts, and then an invitation to proceed. And I ensure that patients understand that they always have permission to eat whatever they want, and that permission is a carte blanche. People can eat whatever they want, and um, when they accept and receive that permission, a whole world of possibility opens up, but then they get to decide. They get to decide to bring it back to their values and bring it back to what what matters. So when people find themselves eating deeply into wanting, they can pop to say, okay, where am I at right now? Without saying, oh, I ate too much. I had too many bites of this, or, oh, my stomach feels so full, or this person's going to think I'm a pig or blah, 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 all of the thoughts, um, get to rush past because you've given yourself a minute to catch up. And then you've decided if continuing to eat into wanting is consistent with your values, which it may be right. Like it may be the best picnic food on earth. Um, or if it's actually time to step out of the eating experience and then practice doing that and inviting yourself to move on to a different experience so that you, can live in your life and a lot of people approach these high stress eating experiences in future states so they spend most of their time imagining the future that has not yet arrived Mm -hmm. and reminding reminding oneself that um, none of that matters and none of that exists it's simply just a moment to moment chew to chew and you have permission to accept or reject any of
0: it Mm, I love that. Yeah. And it's similar to what I help people practice of like creating a intention that you want to walk into that situation. How do you want to feel and helping people connect to those values, that sensation and letting that be the guide Mm -hmm. and using that as kind of the home base to feel, okay, what choices am I making and how does that feel to me? Um, And I love your practice of pop Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's like, right? Just a little popcorn kernel pop yeah. to remember, oh, I can come back to this present moment. and And
1: each chew is a chew. There's nothing that says you have to eat all of anything. There are no rules.
0: Yes, I love that reminder about there are no rules with eating and how we have just culturally made them up. You know, growing up, my mom was all about letting my siblings and I feed our own plates and fill our own plates, and we could choose what we wanted to eat. She was a very anti-clean plate club, because that's what she grew up being forced to do by her mother. I really appreciated that, the sense of authority, of inner authority to to be the captain of my own body, to think about, okay, you know, what looks good to me? What do I want on my plate? And then what do I want in my body? What do I want in each each chew and each bite?
1: What a gift for you.
0: Yes. Huge gift. Huge,
1: huge gift. Um, We, in my practice, we often spend a lot of time combating the clean your plate philosophy. Mm -hmm. And this is a a generation of people, probably your mom's generation actually, who who definitely had a post-war clean your plate mentality mm-hmm. and who were raised like that. And so your mom would would be an exception in this case. So, you know, kudos to her for, for recognizing that.
0: That's enormous. Um, I never got to meet my grandmother, but the stories are pretty intense about her. So I think my mom was like, We're going the other way with my family. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> so so when we think about, you know, you're sharing your the experience of your heritage, this obviously responsive eating has been born out of my experience as an obesity physician, but it's mostly born out of my experience as a person who eats. And both of my parents grew up in homes where there was profound scarcity. So my mom is one of 14 children and my dad is one of eight and their parents were really, truly wonderful people, but they were ill at many times of their life with alcohol use disorders. A lot of it related to post-war experiences. And my, one of my grandfathers was a a Canadian sniper in World War II. I came home, you know, damaged from that. Mm. Um, And then there was just profound poverty um, and they, they grew up hungry. And my father is six foot eight and he's, you know, he's been over 400 pounds my whole life. And so he, and he was a twin. So he, and he was the the seventh of the eight children. And so he, there's this, this philosophy called, or this idea in science called the thrifty phenotype, where, you know, if your genes are going to be big, then they're going to make do with whatever calories are on board. (laughs) So he grew, despite probably not eating as much as, you know, a typical, A larger person would. And so I had this sort of multi-generation experience of scarcity. And then I show up in the world as this also large person. And um, I, you know, grew up eating pretty in a way that was like quite dysregulated. Um, And then that just was perpetuated and perpetuated such that eating was always a very distressing experience for me and it was when i started actually experiencing care that had been a little bit medicalized and a little bit rooted in this idea of hey you you only have so much control over so much and it was it was when i realized that you know altering the way we think about ourselves and altering our behaviors is probably about 30% of the work and then the rest of it is acceptance of what is and then This is where interventions from from the medical system do have value, even though obviously medicine has been a bastion of of stigma for people in larger bodies and for people with mental health issues, obviously. Um, But this is where things like pharmacology and surgery do sometimes help people realize, oh, the addition of one little molecule to my bloodstream changed the way I experience the world. What a gift. Um, and what an opportunity for me to practice all of the other thought work that I've been doing, because it's now a little bit easier to do it. So this is where I think about the, the union of East and West. And I think about the union of modern and traditional and, and thought work and sort of more traditional medicine. And I, I think this, this kind of union is important to to note um, as part of what I do, because the responsive eating piece is is a way of processing eating experiences and wanting, uh, but then sometimes we need a little help, right?
0: Yes, and I think highlighting the holistic aspect of it is so important because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we just think you know oh western medicine can fix me this way you know and it becomes no. very tunnelled and not pay attention to what you eat or how you think or how you move in your body or maybe vice versa with just eastern medicine and not using modern science to to support so i really love the emphasis on the holistic aspect and taking the wisdom from all sorts of places mm-hmm. you know as a cancer survivor food was something that I learned to be a form of medicine and not just medicine from how is it helping my cells get stronger, the healthy cells get stronger, but I also had lost my mom when going through chemotherapy to her own cancer journey. And so I was was dealing with a lot of grief. And with that, I also knew I had to like eat for comfort and love and kind of have that same connection with her wherever I could. It's an interesting way to think about how are we taking care of ourselves through food and through our relationship with food, I think is so important to look at because food is something we we need to eat multiple times a day. And it's an opportunity for us to use our mindfulness practice during those moments to tune in and really explore what's there, what's here for me to pay attention to.
1: I love that you were able to grant yourself permission when you were so vulnerable. And that's just a, that's a time for wanting that kind of a situation is a time for wanting and accepting wanting as actually just part of the way that you're processing uh, that very, very difficult experience. I I would love if I could bottle that (laughs) and give it to people. And what happens when you allow yourself that grace is that wanting subsides, it gets better. And people can do very, very hard things, as you know. And allowing ourselves to experience those flares of desire and flares of pursuit of escape is also okay.
0: Yes, yeah. There's a practice that I learned from one of my meditation teachers, Diana Winston, around urge surfing. Have you Mm. heard of this? Mm-hmm. Practice. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I find it so helpful and, and I share it with my clients a lot of the times, whether it's around food or or anything in life, but it's being able to practice observing the urges that we have. So connecting back to some of the wanting feelings, mm-hmm. noticing how that sense is in the body, notice kind of how it arises like a wave, and then also how it falls. Back into the ocean, like a wave, and as you just said, part of the practice of wanting is also knowing that it's going to su- subside. Mm-hmm. That the wanting is not going to stay there, like this huge hangover craving for it might be super intense, but it won't last <laughs> for for years
1: <laughs> it, it it won't and and that is like just completely true of of cravings and and wanting and urges. Um, I think what is interesting is that so say someone, you know, quits smoking, and they quit smoking for 30 years, but then they go back to their, you know, the place they first smoked, that wanting will come back. So aggressively, it's like they smoked yesterday and people who have developed substance addictions describe this process. Often to me, it's, it's, I used to do more addictions work. And so these patterns of urges and wanting being connected to sort of context that we're going through are really powerful. And, and for those people who have, and I I find this a lot with mothers and daughters where the mother instills a lot of fear around food or is actually the first introduction for the daughter into dieting because the mother themselves are is dieting is that a lot of my patients can can really make a lot of progress and give themselves a lot of space and grace and then they go home where their mom is and all of a sudden all of their sort of pattern sometimes as extreme as binging but sometimes just sort of routine overeating um just sort of appear out of nowhere like they have done no work and because those 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 environmental cues are so powerful even even if we thought they weren't going to have power over us they do because we remember we are remembering beasts and uh it, it sometimes shocks people And if they've often feel like they've taken like seven giant steps backwards when it's really just a lateral move. (laughs) So
0: that's, that's what I was thinking there. I love that. Just the lateral move. I think that's important to highlight because it's not going back. It's just working with. The chaos to working with those intense emotions that come up that get triggered and now they can use their tools that you've instilled with them and their practices and their awareness to then be in relationship to that slightly differently the fact that they're probably aware that they're even triggered is huge uh-huh. huge progress
1: it's amazing and then they can approach their they can look at their parent with compassion and say oh you're living in the culture too. I'm so sorry. Mm. You know, I, I really am sorry that this is what you felt was good for us. And I
0: know that you didn't mean it. Yeah. And just how much forgiveness can be offered and healing can be offered in that interaction. Oh, Ashley, I could keep talking to you <laughs> about food. We didn't even get a chance to really talk about like cooking and, and being with food in that way. Uh, yeah. We'll have to have you back on the podcast. Can you oh. let people know where they can learn more about you and your responsive eating programs and how to stay in touch? Hmm.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And and next time we should definitely talk about what your wanting experience was during that retreat, because or, or maybe you'll write about it or something, because I'm super curious. I have a free version of my responsive eating course available online at drashleywhite.com. So you can just sign up and get access right away to the free version. And then I have um, a version that is a self-study version, and it, it sort of walks people through a pretty comprehensive process. Or you can take the course plus have uh, six live uh, teaching sessions with me online. And then probably by the end of the summer, I'll have... uh, almost like a booklet, like a PDF booklet available for download. And you can work through the the program that way. And of course, um, I'm on all the social platforms uh, at Dr. Ashley White will get you me on most of the platforms.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insights and also offering so many great resources for people to oh, yeah. check out. Great. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, yeah. No, thanks for having me. I, we've clearly come to a, a shared place through very different stories and journeys, um, but I, I love I love it when I'm sort of like oh okay yeah this message is resonating all right and and it's connected to some other person's message across the continent right
0: yes it is cool. so important and it's so important to talk about and to make to bring up all of the layers that food is not just this one dimensional thing that yeah. there's so many layers to it and how can we be open and honest and deeply connected to it all. Mm. Hallelujah. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much, Wade. Thanks so much for listening to the Center of the City podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, if you got some nuggets out of it, if there's somebody in your life you want to share it with, go ahead and share it with them. Jump on Instagram and connect with Dr. Ashley White and I. We would love to hear your takeaways and what you're learning or excited to practice or forward in your life. Until next time, stay centered.